Welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. You out there, Dan? I am, Brian. How's it going? Well, welcome. And welcome to you, listeners, if I didn't already say. We're here, like we always are, to talk about a movie. And this week is, in some ways, a throwback. Uh, It's like an honorable mention to something that we left out of one of our previous theme months, and you might say two of our previous theme months. I've got theme months on the brain, and we'll be talking about why. But today's featured film is The Greatest Show on Earth from 1952. Actually, the Best Picture winner from that year. Yeah, kind of a strange one. I mean, just in terms of movies that you you hear about years and years later i mean greatest show on earth it's it's not i I mean i'd heard of it before it's not a no profile movie but i mean that was the same year as i think as singing in the rain right right so it was up against singing in the rain and so some people consider this like a snub year and i saw it listed as like top three or top five least deserving best picture winners I don't know. We'll dig into it, whether that's a warranted descriptor. Same year as High Noon, the famous John Ford picture, The Quiet Man. But it's directed by Cecil B. DeMille, who is obviously a director well-known for being a director. He's the one who pops up at the end of Sunset Boulevard. That's right, yeah. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. So he kind of has that reputation for making big epics, especially like biblical epics. His final film a few years after this was The Ten Commandments, which is one of my favorites, which was actually a remake of an earlier version of that story that he'd done as a silent movie back in the 20s. 33 years earlier, 1923, he made his silent Ten Commandments. 1956, he made his talkie, Ten Commandments. That's a pretty pretty wild thing. That would be like Steven Spielberg making Jaws now. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought up Steven Spielberg, because what brought this movie, The Greatest Show on Earth, to my attention, was that it features prominently in The Fablemans from this past year, which is a barely fictionalized version of Steven Spielberg's childhood kind of telling the story of how he got into movies and the very first movie that he ever saw when he was five was the greatest show on earth and he has considered it very influential on him Uh, he's put references to it or outright used clips from it in a couple of his films and it's in fablemans a whole bunch 
Yeah, it's very prominent in Fablemans. It's like the, I would say one of the better scenes of that movie, and that movie's got a lot of really good scenes, but uh, young, I forget what his name is. Sammy, Sammy Fableman. Getting uh, fascinated with the spectacle of filmmaking when he, he sees this movie, and it's framed in a really interesting way where you don't know how he's going to react to it, and then it's kind of an exciting reveal that he's, deeply inspired by it and fascinated with it. right so it's minor spoilers perhaps but the the scene it all hinges on is this train collision scene that comes at i guess the climax of this movie yeah pretty much the end yeah. and you know all old school primarily practical effect and then spielberg young spielberg like fixates on recreating it and learning like how do you create that effect in the camera what do you need to do and i when i saw this scene in the movie you know i did the leo point at the screen thing and i thought he did that in super 8 mm. was a movie that he did a collab with jj abrams in 2011 and it has that scene like shot for shot almost that train crash wow but then if you think about it a little more, you know, we've also seen a circus train in another Spielberg movie, which was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, another relevant film. That opens with a circus train. And did you happen to notice how Charlton Heston, the star of this movie, dresses all throughout it, Dan? Yes, he dresses a lot like Indiana Jones. He dresses exactly like Indiana Jones. He's got the <laughs> hat and the leather jacket the whole movie. Yeah. Dashing fellow in this. Yeah, uh, apparently, I mean, I'm sure this had some influence, but there's another Charlton Heston movie from around this same time that's called either The Secret of the Inca or The Treasure of the Inca. And supposedly that's the biggest influence on Indiana Jones. Okay. Where he's down in South America looking for treasure and he's he's still dressed basically the same way. But yeah, I knew this one a little bit by just from seeing that scene. I mean, it was the biggest thing. But also, it's a circus movie and it won Best Picture. So I... Lock it in. Felt surprised yeah that we left it out back when we did circus month a couple couple julys back yeah i'm not sure how it fell off our radar and i think it fits pretty well for for train month you know the, the, there's not that much train action but there's one very intense train scene right and i mean they they use the train a few times and it's only really central to the action at the end but uh what's kind of interesting about this so the filmmakers kind of embedded with the Ringling Brothers circus, IRL, and like traveled around with the troupe for a bit. And so this kind of has like documentary feeling for some of the scenes and covers how the tent gets set up and taken down and loaded on the train and moved from place to place. And when we get these scenes, we get narration from DeMille, which feels very much like some of his biblical epics. He kind of does the same thing in Ten Commandments. And you have that same spirit of, like, cast of thousands. Right. That's that's a term that comes up when they talk about DeMille. Yeah, I was just blown away. I mean, 
say what you will, and I have a couple of opinions about different parts of the movie, but the production values and just the scope of it, it's it's like they didn't skimp on the the production, the the size of it and the the richness of, of how it looks and and just very impressive. I was wondering, Dan, what other movies have you seen either by DeMille or starring Charlton Heston? That's a really good question. And um, I have definitely seen portions of both Cleopatra and the Ten Commandments. I can't say for certain whether I have seen either of them from start to finish. I don't think I've seen any other Cecil B. DeMille films. Um, Yeah, I don't think so. Um, As far as Charlton Heston, pull up his filmography. Yeah, I'm looking back at the list, and I feel like I may have only actually seen Ten Commandments in addition to this. I think that Cleopatra is probably not the famous Cleopatra, because it says 1934. Oh, that's not... I don't think it's Elizabeth Taylor. I feel like that was like 1960. You're right. This is Claudette Colbert. And I thought that he directed Ben-Hur, but Ben-Hur was actually after he retired. Although, in some ways, it's it's almost like a spiritual successor to Ten Commandments. It's still got Charlton Heston in the lead, very much a similar style, but that was directed by somebody named William Wyler. Okay. And I think even the Cleopatra, not this one, but the, the other one, like... I don't know. I think of him whenever I see Sword and Sandal cast a thousand epics that go for like four hours or whatever. Definitely. And I went into this one thinking it was going to be at least three hours, but it's a brisk, breezy two and a half. <laughs> no, it, it actually felt long even at that point, I thought. So for Charlton Heston, uh, you, you mentioned a couple. There, there is some stealth one stealth ones in there that you might not be thinking about, though. Mm hmm. He gives like the opening narration to Hercules when it's kind of spoofing Cecil B. DeMille, if you recall that, like the the Disney Hercules. Absolutely. Yeah, he says something like, in the land of ancient Greece, in the age of heroes, there lived the mighty Hercules. And then then muses interrupt. He's making it sound like some Greek tragedy. We'll take it from here. You go, girls. Dun, 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 dun. Yes, we have the, the Disney Renaissance films burned into our brains. I wonder how far we could get on reciting the entirety of Hercules. <laughs> we, won't, uh, we won't give that to you this evening. We won't subject you, yeah. Have you seen Bowling for Columbine? I have seen Bowling for Columbine. Oh, because he was involved with the uh, NRA, right? Yeah, he, he's the guy who... Well, he's one of the guys who Michael Moore butts heads with there, but he's the... Yeah, Michael Moore is like following him around and he keeps trying to lose him. Like, uh, he kind of sets it up as a good faith interview and then starts blasting him with facts about all the violence that happens with guns. And then Charlton Heston gets mad and I forget exactly what happens, but he kind of storms off or something and Michael Moore chases him around. Yeah. But yeah, he's he's Moses in Ten Commandments. He was Ben-Hur in Ben-Hur. Also, he's the human in Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I'm just looking at this. I, he's in more things than I realized. Like, he, he was in Tombstone, the Western. He was in True Lies, apparently. Um, he was in Armageddon. Really? I guess he did some narration, it looks like. 
Probably not too much of it. Maybe is maybe it was archival or something, but I remember when that starts off, there's a scene that I think has got some narration similar to similar to Hercules. Like it talks about the the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. I'll bet I'll bet that was him. He voiced the Mastiff in Cats and Dogs from 2001, which was a very not good movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. I've also seen Cats and Dogs. Very not good. I'm not sure I would give it a one. It's been long enough since I've seen it. I saw it when I was like, I must have been at least 13, apparently. Yeah, we might have to dig into it. Maybe. Maybe it's worth a, a view. All I'm saying is Charlton Heston month would be an interesting theme month. Definitely. Oh, you know what else he was in? He was in that one, um, the second version of I Am Legend, Omega Man. Hmm. There, maybe, yeah, man, I have so many for October, but like we could do Last Man on Earth and Omega Man and I Am Legend. Oh, he starred in Soylent Green, too? There you go. Charlton Heston, kind of a big deal. Who knew? Yeah, I remember one time we were at your house, actually, and playing charades or something, and I I put Charlton Heston in the hat, and nobody knew who he was. But now you're going you're gonna to know. I mean, that's a hard thing to do charades anyway, but, so, but this one was new to me. I wanted to assign a film for an episode that I hadn't seen before, which I haven't done in a while. And it felt like a key piece that was missing. Oh, another thing. So, like I said, this was shot with the actual Ringling Bros Circus collaborating. And it was shot in part at their off-season camping grounds in Sarasota, Florida, which was a place that I went to visit back in 2021. I did a Florida trip, and Dan was there for part of it. We went and we visited... Orlando and the creative engineering robot warehouse. But then I kept traveling for like the next week and was looking for circus themed stops. And so I actually was in Sarasota and I visited these grounds and the Ringling Circus Museum. They actually had a little tiny car, which they said was the one from this movie. And it's possible it was a recreation and not the original, but it, the same size, same look. It was playing on a little screen, the clip from the film. And I climbed into the car and I, I took a clip in the tiny car. Oh, nice. Could I uh, dig up a picture of that or a clip of that and put it on the Discord? Yes, join our Discord. You can find it at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. We've had a couple people join. Thank you for those who have joined. And just for historical background, this covers Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which, as the name suggests, was like an amalgam of several once distinct operations. The Ringling Brothers were actual brothers, five of them. They all looked almost the same. They had big, old-timey handlebar mustaches. But they founded their circus in 1884... And they purchased their competitor, Barnum and Bailey Circus, which had originated with Barnum in 1871, when James Bailey, kind of, sort of, the inspiration for the Zac Efron character, died in 1906. And 
they merged the two shows into Ringling Brother and Barnum and Bailey in 1919. So that's what, like 30-ish, 25-ish years before this movie in 1952. And the last year that Ringling Brothers toured with their tent was 1956. Hmm. So... Shortly after this movie. We get some good tent footage in here. Yeah. This is kind of the tail end of an era. Similar to how The Greatest Showman in 2017 coincided with the circus ultimately closing. Like, uh, between those dates, 1956 and 2017, I guess they were touring all at, like, arenas. You know? George Mason Patriot Center or... Eagle Bank Arena. Like monster trucks. No CGI elephants marching around to uh, singing and dancing. What's that guy's name? Hugh Jackman? Hugh Jackman in, in this one. Yeah, no Zendaya. But there are quite a few musical numbers that I wasn't exactly expecting in this one. That's true. There are. There's some Christmas music in here. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, oh come all ye faithful. <laughs> all day, stay day. I was like, what? We're at the circus. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, it's like I wasn't actually expecting that. Why the hell is there a guy in a goofy costume walking around? <laughs> a tribute to Disney. While we're listening to Oh Come All Ye Faithful. Yeah, really interesting to see those like old school off brand Disney character suits. I, just to explain the context, there's a lot of clips of just the circus happening, and part of it is people dressed up in Disney costumes, and also people playing music. It's not integral to the plot. I, I wish that Goofy was integral to the plot. Yeah, there's multiple like processions, opening and closing processions of the circus, of just all the acts marching around the rings. Are we ready to dig into what does comprise the plot? Sure. So, yeah, it opens up in Sarasota, Florida, in the off-season of the circus. And our protagonist, Brad, played by Charlton Heston, is the manager of the troupe. So he's not the ringmaster, but he calls all the shots. He, like, makes hiring decisions, and he's portrayed as really knowledgeable about every aspect of the show he's like a circus perfectionist and he really really loves the circus oh maybe he's a cecil b demille (laughs) stand-in it's like this is how he envisions himself as the noble leader a a demille insert it could be but like in the opening moments he's going around through the throngs of circus personnel like giving advice and pointers on everything they're doing. So like how to treat a sick gorilla and like what kind of viscosity to use in your circus wagon axle grease. And he has like an encyclopedic knowledge of all the costumes that the wardrobe department has. So he's, he's just all about the circus all the time. And I think it's like, I was starting to wonder, like, is he circus sexual? (laughs) Like, 
he doesn't seem to tick the way a normal man does. Yeah, there's some something about him. It, his wife is is the circus. His <laughs> wife and his life, I suppose. Yep. Is that a, a term that you invented just now, Brian? <laughs> yes. So the circus's owner, who at this point is like a grandson or grandnephew of the original Ringling Brothers, and this was an IRL circus owner, John Ringling North, he wants to scale back the tour for this year's circus season. Basically, he pulls Charlton Eston into his office and he says, listen, Brad, we're only going to hit the big cities this year and it's going to take like two months instead of the usual eight months or something. Some huge chunk of the year, I guess normally the circus would be going around to every podunk town. And that's kind of the classic image that you envision in American history that this, the day the circus comes to town is they blow through some little community. Right. Like a fever dream almost. Right. So that's kind of the tradition. And if there's one thing Brad loves, it's circus tradition. And he says, no, no, no. We have to have the full season. And I mean, part of it is that there's 1400 people who work for this thing. So he doesn't want to see them put out of work. The show must go on. And he's ultimately able to lobby for this full season because what he pitches is that he is going to hire a big money draw star act. And this act is the great Sebastian, a trapeze star. And I was kind of wondering, where is this trapeze star performing Anyway, if he's not with your circus, is, is there like some rival circus? Or like maybe he's international. He's got a little bit of an accent. Maybe he's in Europe. That's a good point. Yeah, I'll bet that's what it is. You know, like Jenny Lind in in Greatest Showman. But I kind of like the idea that he's like a free agent. Like <laughs> he does his own trapeze. Speaking of Jenny Lind from The Greatest Showman with that song... It'll never be enough. Uh, my daughter, my five-year-old, did a dance program. And one of, not her class, but a class that practiced at the same time, did their recital number to that song. And so I heard it like once a week, every week. Not even the entire song, but like a, a minute and a half snippet of it for like four months on end. So it's it's ingrained into my brain. Oh, wow. I've heard Greatest Showman needle drops in a lot of places over the last few years. Just like at weddings, I've heard instrumental versions and like in food courts over the loudspeakers. It seems to be in the culture. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Circus lives on. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, they're going to get this guy, the great Sebastian. It, before we dive in here, just we're like, what, a, not even a half hour into the movie at this point, probably like 15 minutes into the movie. And so far, we've talked about like greasing wagon axles and like what are the economics of scheduling different stops at a tour of the circus? It's not exactly like getting the blood pumping as a, a, a rousing opener. <laughs> 
Yeah. This is a lot about the logistics of, of the circus. Right. Some nitty gritty. Which, yeah, I feel like, you know, Cecil B. DeMille talked to somebody behind the scenes and was just really impressed with the whole operation. You know, he loves large scale projects where you get big groups together. And I think he felt a kinship and kind of wanted to capture the grandeur of the scale. You know what? You know what that makes me think of when you say it that way? And I think you're right. It's kind of like James Cameron with the Titanic. And we've been thinking about and talking about the Titanic because of the uh, mini sub that went down to explore it. And unfortunately, it imploded and everyone on died. But there's been a lot of headlines about the Titanic this week. And, um, you know, part of the appeal of that is that James Cameron just thought it was super interesting. And so he like wanted to make a thing about it. And he's also always really interested in how boats and undersea exploration and looking at shipwrecks work. And so he fit all that nitty gritty into a, a movie. But I think he did a little more. He, he accomplished a little bit more with the dramaturgical elements than uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Right. Did Though, here. Yeah. Titanic. Also a best picture winner that we've covered here on the show. That's true. Yeah. I think I looked at the list and we've addressed like six of them i think best picture winners there was parasite and it happened one night and a few others the apartment Mm-hmm. what else i don't know look at our list but yeah um always good to check another one off the list this is not one that i had gone out of my way to see right me neither but i figured i sat in the car so i gotta see the movie but the hiring of the great Sebastian upsets Holly, who is Brad's girlfriend, kind of. They, they got something going on, although he seems to primarily have circus passion. Like, that's what gets his blood pumping, is just managing a circus. And so she is also a trapezer, and has like climbed through the ranks to be the center act. She occupies the center ring of the circus when she does the aerialist act. And now Sebastian has just been given that slot and she protests, but pretty dispassionately Brad tells her this is about economics. Sebastian's going to bring in more money and the act that brings in the most money gets the middle ring. He just shuts her down. And and so this is kind of a start of like a the the human melodrama. So there's kind of two parallel tracks going on here. One is the logistics of the circus, and then one is the human melodrama. Just a lot of I don't I guess this kind of character is an archetype, but kind of like the stoic guy who can't profess his feelings. You know, he's just he's too much of a manly man to really say that he cares. And I think the movie was trying to go for that, but it, you're right. It just kind of came across that he was a circus weirdo <laughs> with a cool Indiana Jones hat. <laughs> yeah, so pretty soon Sebastian is going to show up and create this like love triangle, love quadrangle. But they're not the only human element of the story because we've got this supporting cast of other circus performers we keep checking back in on. So one is Angel, 
who is a woman who performs with the elephants. And pretty early and repeatedly, she expresses that she is interested in bread. But I... I don't know why she initially thinks they can't be together. She's like, oh, Brad is virtuous and I have a checkered past or something. It's like, I've been with a lot of men and he only loves, you know, he, he's like weirdly chaste. So I, I don't know exactly, but that's that's her deal. I didn't quite get it. Yeah. He's a one woman man or something. That's what she says. Yeah, that's her wording. And then Jimmy Stewart is in this movie as a clown named Buttons. And I didn't even realize it was him until he talked and he had the Jimmy Stewart voice. Yeah, definitely. Well, and that's part of the point of the character is you don't know, you don't recognize him, but which we'll, we'll get to. Right. Yeah. He never takes his makeup off. He's all, he's full time clowning 24 seven. He definitely thought he was in a different movie. In my opinion, a better movie. This is like all of a sudden Jimmy Stewart playing a doleful clown when you have this just it doesn't fit in with anything else. There's a lot of like mismatched pieces to this sprawling film. Yeah. There's a character named Klaus who is the elephant trainer. And he kind of considers Angel to be his girlfriend, but she refutes this repeatedly. And then a pretty prominent character, even though I didn't really think she ever did anything, was Phyllis, played by Dorothy L'Amour, who still had a lot of fame coming off of the Road 2 series, which she starred in with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. So, like, Road to Morocco and Road to Bali. I think they made, like, six of them through the 40s and into the 50s. Mm. So, you know, she was a marquee name, but mostly what she does in this movie is she sings. She's always brought out to sing the songs. And she also has something called an iron jaw act, which is like she bites down on a rope and hangs by her teeth. That sounds brutal. And, yeah... Holly and Phyllis are not circus star names. Like when you got Angel and Klaus and Sebastian, those are good circus names. Uh, you don't put Holly as the center act on a circus poster. You just don't. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of old fuddy-duddy names popular in the 30s and 40s and 50s. But Sebastian finally gets to the circus and he's got an escort of police cars he says but the police say you broke like 10 traffic laws racing across town to this circus grounds and sebastian's like well my new boss will pay those traffic violations so he's causing trouble from the start a good introduction to him in the sense that we immediately have a sense of what this guy is he's he's a smarmy and uh not necessarily an objectively bad dude, but he's going to uh, assume that he gets his way on things. Right. He's going to stir the pot. And even before we ever saw him, he's had a reputation that precedes him because when he gets his name brought up in this planning meeting at the start, some of the like executives 
say basically that he's a womanizer that he'll sow domestic unrest you know he's a a Casanova and he's just gonna cause drama I didn't quite understand they're like you can't have a successful show with him like I didn't really understand why they didn't give a good reason why He's a pot stirrer, I guess. Yeah, I I didn't get why it would be bad either. But then, like, after the meeting, then you hear the women talking about him, too. And they, like, all, a bunch of them have met him before and kind of have a past with him. And so, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to cause showmance issues, isn't that? We've talked briefly in the past about that. The, you know, theater kids, they have showmances. Getting involved in, in while putting on a show, yeah. It, all this is kind of complicated because with the exception of Jimmy Stewart and I guess Dorothy Lamore, who looks a little different, they all just like look like normal actresses, like they're generic, handsome Hollywood people. And they put on a lot of different costumes. So there's a few times I was like, wait, which character is this? <laughs> I lost track. Yeah, that's a That's a good point. There are a lot of quick changes, but... When Sebastian learns that he's upset Holly by upstaging her, taking the center ring, he offers to give it back. And that kind of charms her. And she's driven further from Brad when he's like, no, I already told you how this is going to be. Sebastian is in the middle ring. Like, he's firm on that. He knows the circus that he wants to run. And through this process, Sebastian kind of hones in on... Holly is going to be the target of his affections. Like his, his next would be conquest. He's after Holly now. And the two of them then kind of amplify their rivalry in the ring. So they're going to kind of battle to see who's the best trapeze artist. And as this duel builds, it both draws in larger crowds, but also kind of necessarily results in them upstaging each other with more and more dangerous high wire tricks. The, these scenes are shot in a really interesting way because it alternates between close-ups where it's just the actors and I guess it was a green screen or, or something strange. And then it, it also zooms out and it has what are, I thought, pretty clearly doubles doing the actual trapeze work. Right. So this movie is going to lose a point or maybe even two full points for me because it has just the worst green screen I've ever seen. Just saturated. It's like almost constant. Things are being green screened in and it's like early gauntly. Like there's even a scene where there's characters like standing by uh, like a a paddock or something. Like there's animals behind a fence and they're green screened to be standing by this fence and there's cuts happening behind them. Like whatever footage is back there is cutting and they're staying still. It's like, oh my God. Oh, wow. I didn't notice that. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Don't look at their hair. The hair is where you really notice the green screen edges. Right. They've got a green barrier, especially if it's like blonde hair and you can see through it. Yeah, that definitely threw me. I've never seen that in a movie. Oh, to be fair, I mean, this must have been super early to even be able to use green screen. In 1952, I didn't know they had it back then. 
But like, yeah, there's a scene where you can just see through the actors. They're like transparent. Really weird. Huh. And, you know, Brad is kind of rolling his eyes at these antics that are endangering his precious circus. Yeah, because the things they're doing, it's like doing a headstand on a chair on a trapeze with no net underneath. It's insane. Yeah, pretty risky. Also, we're getting some like mystery building about Buttons the Clown, Jimmy Stewart, because he keeps doing things that require medical knowledge. Like he can make casts and things. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. And he, he never takes off the makeup and he never talks about his past. And like, he seems to let his guard down around Holly, but he still is not like given specifics. Although he says like before they go on the road that there is, she asks if there's a girl in his life. And he says, yes, there is one, but he only sees her once a year when they're on the road. And then... We find out that this he's talking about his mother and she like meets him outside the tent or in the bleachers after a performance. And she whispers to him that the police are on his trail. I really like this scene. This was maybe my favorite moment of the film because you don't know who she is at first. And, you know, I, I was like. I probably, if I was a little more deeply engaged, I could have tried to piece exactly who she was and why she was there. But like, he's just performing and he steps to the side and he's performing for these kids and keeping his show face on. And then he leans in and gives a flower to an old woman. And it, I don't know who this actress is. She's an older woman and she's like, her eyes are misting up at, at him approaching. And he like leans in and gives her some flowers that he pulled out of his shirt and they like have a they they have to say hi and express affection for each other but she also needs to say that he's in danger and it's like much more emotional content in this like 2 minute scene than anywhere else in the movie there's a lot of yeah melodramatic emotion in all the button scenes but pretty soon the clues get less and less subtle that what his backstory is, is that he was a doctor who had to go on the run because he was responsible for the death of his wife, like under his medical care or on the operating table or something. They find like a newspaper cut out amidst the sawdust that says that this this doctor went on the run. And Wikipedia says it was a mercy killing. So I guess that he euthanized her to minimize her suffering from a terminal illness. Because they do say that she was sick. Hmm. Uh, but how clear was that in the movie? Not clear to me. I didn't catch it. I, I just thought that he... I didn't even know what it was. Like, Did he mess it up? Was like it a malpractice thing? I don't know. That's kind of what I assumed it was. Or like he... I don't know why it would be this specifically, but he like helped a, a mob or something like that. That maybe just what ran through my head because I didn't have too much to latch on to. Yeah, I, I couldn't really tell. It was weird. What do they say? It's like he killed what he loved 
It's like, well, what does that mean? I need to <laughs> know more about this so I know how to feel about this character. Yeah. But he seems to have a good heart. I mean, he's Jimmy Stewart. And everybody seems to like him, and he's good at what he does, both as a clown and a secret doctor. Not every Jimmy performance is just him being Jimmy Stewart, but here he's squarely in, oh, we like him because he's Jimmy Stewart. He's got a clown makeup going on, but, you know, he's still, uh, he's got that that, uh, homespun charm to him. The trapeze rivalry continues to build to the point that Brad says, if you guys are going to keep showboating, I'm going to put a net under you. And he does. And then cavalierly, Sebastian, you know, he's like the great Giacomo. The great Sebastian needs not a net. And he slashes through it and then promptly suffers a catastrophic fall. Yeah. He like, like, th- the next time. Yeah, yeah, he like flips off the trapeze through a hoop and then just comes crashing to earth and gets smashed, they say. I smashed him! But, uh, honestly, he comes out of this better than I thought he was going to. Like, he's he's smooshed down there on the floor and they kind of shuffle him out. And, of course, Buttons is on the scene to provide medical attention. It is a little gnarly. They put on some fake wound makeup that they like made crisscross like the net. And I don't know. I was like, oh, what could that looks brutal. Yeah. Like, you know, the the rope was still down there on the ground. Like it wasn't holding anything up anymore, but he fell down on the rope and it like, yeah, cut up a grid pattern all over his arm and chest. Yeah. But you're right. He just gets up and he, he I mean, he has to be like walked to the ambulance but he he's still alive you know yeah it's like he fell like 50 feet i think you would have your world rocked a little more yeah it's like he sprained an ankle or something <laughs> but what this scene reminded me of have you seen ben-hur i've that's another one that i've definitely seen significant parts of but maybe not the whole thing straight through because during the the famous chariot race which is like the most iconic scene from that movie oh yeah Mm -hmm. he's got all throughout the story a rivalry with this roman dude and they battle each other in the chariot race and then during the chariot race like the the asshole rival guy is like you know he stops whipping his horses and he starts whipping ben-hur and then Ben-Hur, like, grabs the the whip that he's whipping him with and is, like, yanking him around. And then the rival falls out of his chariot and goes under the legs of his horses. And that effect, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm sure they just threw a dummy down there. It looks really good, though. Like, it looks like he just got obliterated by a bunch of horses' hooves. And then then the race ends and and Ben-Hur wins. And then he checks in, like, after the race at the what passed for a hospital in classical Rome and the the dude is all torn up on a stretcher and you know, he's got a broken body and that was the, the vibe I was feeling in this scene. So he's down for the count for a while. Sebastian is out of the picture and you wonder for how long. And I kind of thought he was gone for good, but w- we'll see. 
I guess that's another way that he could have been trouble for the the circus. They're like, oh, you, you need someone more reliable, not someone who's going to get carried away and hurt himself and ruin the whole show or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're able to muster on. You know, Holly's back in the center ring, but is troubled because of what led up to her returning to the center ring. You know, is, was it worth this this cost? Right. The monkey paw situation. Exactly. Uh, one other thread that we revisit a couple times. There's this carny named Harry who runs crooked midway games, like at the periphery of the fairgrounds. And Charlton Heston is very about running an on-the-level circus. He's like, you can't cheat people here on my midway. And he keeps trying to throw them, throw them away, throw them off. This, this crooked carny. And in doing so, runs afoul of this, like, gangster guy. This organized crime figure who gets a cut from this shady carnival dude. And so he keeps, like, visiting Brad, the, the mob guy. And saying, I can make things hard for you. You don't, don't, you know, kick my guys out. But he's Charlton Heston, so I think we know. <laughs> we have a feeling of, of how things are going to shake out. But three months pass, and Sebastian comes back. He arrives back in the circus to, like, get his last paycheck or something. And, I mean, I was just, like, baffled. Because he's walking around, he's talking, like, for a man who just did what he had happened to him, I thought he looked very good indeed. Yeah, he looks normal. Yeah, and the reveal is that he has, like, a claw hand now. I guess one of his arms is paralyzed. It's all crunched up. Mm-hmm. He's, like, holding a, a jacket over it so you can't see it at first. And this, of course, bothers Holly. And she has kind of developed feelings for Sebastian and also the guilt about her role in what's happened to him. And so she goes to him and professes love to Sebastian and says, don't leave. We'll still find a position for you at the circus. Maybe you can't do the trapeze anymore, but you can be a concessionaire. You can sell balloons and you can still be a part of this kind of family that we've got. And then when this happens, Holly's with Sebastian. Now angel kind of sees her chance, the, the elephant, uh, attendee woman. And so she comes in and makes a move on Brad, which she's been waiting to do. And I don't know about you, Dan, but I saw way more chemistry between, Holly and Sebastian, and even between Angel and Brad, than the other way around. I don't know what your thoughts are on the relationships in this movie. I can buy that. I'm never really convinced that Brad and, and Holly, like, why would we care about whether they were together? I guess it's kind of the same thing what you're saying with the chemistry. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't know, Angel and Brad just seemed kind of, I don't know, like they liked each other. I mean, that's a little more than we see with Holly and Brad. Right. Well, Angel kind of slinks into Brad's, like, train car 
And she, it, I mean, it's, it's almost like, I know what you like. You like the circus. It's like <laughs> she's willing to just like kind of, you know, yield to all his stuff, all his weirdness. Uh, and just like let him, you know, kind of kind of lead things. Meet the circus sexual at his level. Exactly. She like lights his pipe. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to do things your way. And then the, the Holly and Sebastian, I mean, they've got the collegial relationship. They're coworkers. They, they do the same job, you know, and they kind of push each other to excel at that job. So they just really seem to have more rapport. And Sebastian just seems to be into more stuff, a more varied hobbies than Brad. I don't know. I mean, he's still as the trapeze guy, but like he talks about champagne and France and just like cliched romantic stuff that Brad doesn't. I kind of saw that from the angle of he's like a womanizer trying to reform and is Holly going to be the one to make him settle down? It doesn't really do too much with that on a textual level, but just in terms of like his details of like being the fancy guy who talks about champagne with the women and, um, her trying to woo him, but also not be, I don't know, fake about it or something. I was, it's kind of an odd and honestly not very compelling romantic uh, dynamic we have here between all of them. Yeah, I think you're right on pretty much all those fronts. It's kind of a slow movie and it keeps getting broken up by these bits where we're watching the circus act. It's just very odd. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but just the experience of watching it is it's so unusual because you'll have like 10 minutes of generic studio era melodrama with vaguely handsome and charismatic, but not particularly interesting people. And then you have like 15 minutes of watching an actual Ringling Brothers circus with, you know, real flying trapeze, although cut back and forth to make it seem like our actors are the ones doing it with the help of green screen and like uh, animal, real animals, a lot of real animals and some people who would have been called freaks at the time, you know, and it seems like they're the real ones. I, I'm not actually sure. So it's it's almost like pseudo, pseudo documentary as well as being a, big high budget epic it's like you're saying it's like capturing it's like is there a better documentary of what the circus was really like than this does is that a film out there that exists because i would certainly buy that this is like the best film footage we have of real circus like the highest budget clearest shot brightest color best camera angles you know of a, of a circus even though it's interspersed with all the other story stuff it's almost like go one way or the other like be the story of the clown doctor who accidentally killed a man and now he's stuck in this drama or it'd be just a circus documentary, you know? Right. It feels to me kind of like those fifties Disney documentaries where it was like true wilds or wildlife. They would do those like nature documentaries and they would have like dramatic narration, but it would have, you know, the, the lemmings in the Arctic or, the the animals in the desert and 
we talked a little bit about those back when we uh, when we covered bears mm-hmm. with John C. Riley. But I, I feel like those kinds of things were in vogue in the fifties. Okay, just you know, offer a, a documentary portrait of a place or a, a culture. So yeah, it's a hodgepodge. There's a lot of different elements in this thing. But Angel getting involved with Brad angers Klaus, the German elephant trainer, who had me thinking of Peter and Ivan from Chuck E. Cheese and the Galaxy 5000. (laughs) Yeah. German himbos, I think you said. That's right, yeah. That's who Klaus is. And... Except he's got an army of an army of elephants at his command and his disposal. I want to see the Klaus takeover of of the circus. Yeah. Klaus and his elephants versus Brad. <laughs> the rival faction. Circus Civil War. But yeah, because one of the acts that they do with the elephants, and they actually foreshadow this, like they talk about it earlier in the movie, is they have a woman lie on the ground and then an elephant act like it's going to step on her face. Like, that's <laughs> that's the act. But they, they demonstrate that they have such mastery over the elephant that it doesn't step on her face. Right. And then finally the act comes, the time comes for the act, and Klaus leans over and whispers to Angel, who, of course, is the woman on the ground. But what if I do let the elephant step on your face? Because I'm kind of thinking that that's what I'm going to do. And we linger in this tension for a moment before Brad jumps in and and says, Klaus, you're fired. You damn elephant tyrant. <laughs> Get your damn dirty paws off her, you elephant. But he, like, it's it's lucky that Charlton Heston has such a knowledge of every aspect of the circus, because, like, what if he didn't know how to control the elephants? It's like, you couldn't just jump in in the middle of this thing if you didn't. I'm imagining um, the Simpsons episode, Cape Fear, when Sideshow Bob gets squashed by a, a parade coming through and all the elephants step on him and he gets, like, cartoonishly squished down (laughs) so now there's a few people who have bones to pick with brad a few people have been thrown out of the circus unceremoniously and soon they're gonna start teaming up but before we get developments on that front uh, word starts coming around that the cops are closing in on buttons and we find that it seems like pretty much everybody knows that he's the secret killer doctor. Like, Charlton Heston knows. Holly pretty sure knows. And they're like, oh yeah, you're, he's that guy. But we like him, so we, we kind of want to give him a chance to escape the, the net closing around him. And so they kind of tip him off. You know, but between now and the next stop of the train... You should lie low and try to find a way out of this. Oh, another development is that Sebastian has started regaining feeling in his hand, his damaged hand. And Button says this is a sign that his injury may not be permanent. He may be able to regain the function of his arm. Mm -hmm. I kind of laughed every time he pulled out his hand. He's like holding it. Kind of 
I don't know. It just looked kind of goofy. Like he's holding his hand really stiff and they put like gray uh, hand makeup or I don't know, something <laughs> on it so that it looks kind of rotten or something. But he's just kind of holding it there all stiff. Right. It's it's like corpse pale. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hand. You put hand makeup on it. I don't know. What, what would you call it? <laughs> I mean, I think I would just call it makeup. But yeah. So at this point, like, things are a-brewing. Everybody's got, like, that next point that they're trying to get to. So, okay, well, Buttons has to get away. Sebastian has to recover the use of his hand. And everybody gets on the circus train to go to the next stop. And now is when we get this scene that was in the Fablemans. Because Klaus and Harry show up together in a car... And this is the the Carney and the Elephant Trainer who both got thrown out by Brad. And I guess their plan is that they're going to rob the pay wagon is what they say. There's like a car on the train that has, it's like the armored car. It's got the money that would be used to pay the circus performers. And so they put like a road flare on the track to stop the train. And then while... Brad and the muckety mucks running the circus are like, what's going on? Why'd the train stop? They're sneaking around the back to pilfer the payroll. But I guess the circus has two trains. Because there's another train coming up behind the first train. And I guess because he suddenly realizes that he has put angel in danger klaus suddenly freaks out and starts driving along the tracks groundhog day style towards this second train that's coming up and waving his arm saying stop stop and the second train does slow down but still obliterates klaus just the little model car just goes flying and also slams into the stopped train. So what are we seeing here, Dan? Yeah, it's pretty wild. And it, it's kind of out of the blue because the spectacle in this movie has been entirely contained within the circus. To the If you want to talk about the, the spectacle of this movie, it's, hey, here's elephants. Hey, here's trapeze. Hey, here's, uh, I, I don't know what else. Uh, Disney characters marching around and people in fancy outfits and stuff. And so it's like, I don't know if natural naturalist is the right word, but like it's, it's very within reality in general and particularly in the established reality of like, Hey, we're at a circus. And then all of a sudden in the last 20 minutes of the movie, it's this like special effects train flying off the tracks, car, like, cars flipping over and you see shots it's almost like a disaster movie of like people grabbing the curtains as the the train flips over as there's like animal cages busting and animals are coming out and just this massive debris and i was like what movie are we even watching here like what is going on right now but it's also probably the best scene just in the entire movie in terms of like being exciting like having really cool stuff on screen that you're like oh this is a movie wow I mean, a lot of this movie, again, it's, it's people talking and then it's it's circus footage. So this was like pretty awesome to, to watch, but but 
felt like it belonged in a different movie, I guess. I right. Know. I can see why this is the scene you would glom onto. And yeah, the craziest part to me is there's like lion cages flying around and they smash open and the lions come running out. And I had to wonder what area did they set up to shoot this scene in? Like there must have been some kind of larger container surrounding the the place to just have these lions dashing around and a tiger. I think the tiger actually gets pretty close to some people like, yeah. Cool stuff with the the animals on the loose. Right. There's the Ray Harryhausen movie, um, Mighty Joe Young. He might have been like the assistant on that. Whoever the other, the, the King Kong guy, I think he paired with. Yeah, Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen working together. And I was thinking of that a little bit because in that one, they have scenes. I think it's actually at a circus. It's some sort of show and they have animals and they have the the special effects gorilla, Mighty Joe Young, getting mad and then fighting some circus animals. And it's you have similar things where you have like these action set pieces with uh, all of a sudden there's real lions and tigers in there. But the one that got me in that one is the gorilla picks up the, the lion and throws him, like tosses him. And... You see it with the special effects, like the sort of claymation-y thing, where they're both claymation, and he throw like, the claymation giant gorilla throws the claymation lion, and then it cuts to, like, a real-life lion flying through the air and, like, hitting the ground and tumbling over and getting up and running off screen. I was like, how did they actually throw a lion? <laughs> and there's some sensation of that here, too. It's like... Real cages flipping over and lions walking out of it. It's like, man. So I thought for sure in this calamity, we were going to lose one of our main characters. Like maybe Holly. I thought there was a a decent chance of Angel. I thought Sebastian. I thought Sebastian was going to go because he like just had that moment where he like He's regaining the use of his hand. Oh, he's he's going to make it. He's going to be better. I thought he was I thought he was going to be done. But no, they all make it. They all make it out of this. Uh, They mention casualties, but I don't know who that is. Like who died in this thing? They don't kind of linger on that, even though stuff is just strewn cattywampus everywhere. It's like train cars sticking up vertically. Yeah. But Brad is squashed under, like, uh, a piece of debris. You know, it's pinned his legs, like, up to his waist, and he's pinned to the ground. So he is hurt. He needs some medical attention. Uh, But in the moment, all he wants to do is get the show on the road. He's like, no, no, the the costumes spilled out of the costume car. Go, go put them back. And like, I need a manifest of all the animals, round up the animals, get them back on the train. Like he, his mind is going a mile a minute. Gotta run the circus. That's his thing. That's his kink. <laughs> the circus, my love. <laughs> um, And the doctor was not killed, but he was knocked unconscious. The official circus doctor. So buttons needs to come back even though he had started to kind of slink away in the madness like oh great cover to escape and go on the lamb but he 
is is one back to come and and treat Brad. Yeah, there's a moment where uh, I think it's Holly tries to convince him to go treat Brad and Jimmy Stewart does some real acting and it's like, wow, it's he just belongs in a different caliber of film than everyone else we have here. I mean, you know, they're all kind of doing their own big spectacle acting and then you have Jimmy Stewart doing real acting. It's like it's it's just different. Yeah, I kept getting choked up with various things that Jimmy Stewart would do. I know he's he's so good and he he's touching. On the other hand, Charlton Heston I think was the basis for like Calculon, the over-the-top actor robot on Futurama. And uh I watched this with my dad and he pointed out that he has a lot of the same mannerisms in this movie as he does in 10 Commandments where he he'll like grab a woman and hold her by the shoulders and kind of stand behind her in this like you know the perfect angle to like get his face and he's always delivering these like annunciations more you know kind of like an old-timey stage actor than an emotive film actor right i think he looks like um the football player tom brady a whole lot in this film i usually think of him as looking a little bit older than this but he he reminded me of Tom Brady. He's got like the massive jawline and, uh, and you know the the perfect hair and all that. Right. What is kind of interesting here? So Buttons is is treating him, and Angel comes up with her elephant to lift the weight off of him, and he's got like a severed artery or something. He's bleeding a whole lot, and so everybody has to kind of come together. Uh, like he needs a blood transfusion and the person who has the type of blood that he has is Sebastian. So they kind of have to put their differences aside and Sebastian is help saving him and buttons is helping to save him. And then the detective who's been chasing buttons walks up and he has to like help. Also they're doing this procedure where they have to like count and pump the blood at a certain rhythm. And so he's helping buttons with that, even though they're ostensibly enemies working together on this common goal. We'll save the circus sexual. (laughs) And yeah, then Holly, the way she's going to contribute is they kind of have a switcheroo between Holly and Brad. Like, Brad is realizing that, oh, maybe it is important to have human connections and, you know, have more in your life than just being a circus manager. But then Holly suddenly is gripped with a fervor that the show must go on. Even though there's, like, shredded metal and spattered blood everywhere, it's like, what we need right now is to do our show and so she rounds up like everybody who's still alive i guess and marches them into the town on an impromptu circus parade to advertise that they're gonna have a a circus performance yeah i mean it's kind of a common trope in romances it's like the personalities of the two kind of meet somewhere in the middle but it did feel very awkward here not very elegant yeah, and to me, it's mostly that there's, like, there's dead people lying around. <laughs> there's, like, smoke billowing out and, like, blood splattered <laughs> organs on the ground. Yeah, this might not be the best time. Like, I'm pretty sure there's still some loose lions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sure, bring 
bring every town USA out here. And so, yeah, there's like this final uh, circus parade music number where you can see through Holly because of the green screen. And she she marches everybody back uh, in this like triumphant climax. Uh, meanwhile, like Buttons and the cop were able to stitch up Brad. So he's going to live. And then the cop takes Buttons away like he he squandered his he you know, he sacrificed his chance to get away. And now he's in custody. I guess. I, I kind of still want to know more about what exactly his deal is. But he's been apprehended. Yeah. Yeah, g- give me a, a version of this movie that's an hour shorter, but it just follows Jimmy Stewart, his character. That'd be a much better movie than this. Right, yeah, if we see his, it, you know, the Button's first act, see what led to him being there, and then he's the clown, and, and have that be what we follow. I think that would have been better, yeah. Uh, but the improvised circus show is a hit. Oh, and just kind of as an aside, Sebastian and Angel get together. They're like, so we had a thing once. We could have a thing again. And she says, okay. Yeah, that it was kind of out of the blue, too. <laughs> okay. And then it was over. Greatest show on Earth from 1952. Uh, outstanding thoughts, Dan. Qualities we maybe haven't commented on yet. So there's one thing that appears on screen like 10 times, and I just could not figure it out. It looked like really miniature elephants. And I'm talking like two feet high elephants, like the size of a small dog. It was dogs. It was dogs in costumes. Okay, that's what I thought, but I just couldn't tell. It looked pretty good. It's good costumes on the dogs. I just also want to shout out the um, really good costuming. The colors are really bright. It's kind of a feast for the the senses in that regard. It's like there's always just a lot of detail in some aspects of the production, more so than the writing and the story, which I liked. It's, it's fun to watch a, a high-budget studio film with where the majority of things are practical and you have all that glamour. Um, in the midst of this big cast and big production. Yeah. I mean, I like the circus. I, I almost understand where Brad is coming from. You wouldn't go quite that far. Yeah, not quite so far. Uh, something that I thought was interesting that they do a lot in this movie is we keep getting cutaways to various audience members and like seeing their perception of the circus. I thought that was good. Um, usually almost every time they did it, I got something out of it. Um, often it was funny because there's a scene like where it's a dad and a son and the dad is like really, really into it. And the son is not. Uh, I like that. I think we might be thinking of the same one. This is during one of the procession things where they have the Disney characters out and it keeps cutting back to the dad and the son. And the dad is getting really excited about the movie cartoon characters. Okay. He says, look, it's the Mad Hatter. (laughs) <laughs> it's mickey mouse <laughs> and what i thought was kind of wild is that uh alice in wonderland came out in 1951 so that was like the brand spanking new disney movie yeah that would be like the encanto characters appearing exactly and one of these cutaways to the audience there's a cameo from bob hope and bing crosby watching one of the dorothy lamore songs so that was kind of neat it was like, hey, there's the star of Disney's Ichabod and Mr. Toad from 1949. That being Bing Crosby. Right. 
Oh, good connection, yeah. But, yeah, a big weakness for me, just this heinous green screen. It never looked good, and it was used all the time. And just overall, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a hodgepodge scattershot. I mean, that's maybe maybe too harsh, because the production values are high, generally. Uh, a lot of which seems to come from just being boots on the ground with the actual circus team and just having this access. So there's a lot that's cool, but it never really comes together as a cohesive whole. Right. Yeah, I, I kind of wish it had leaned more into just here's some really freaking awesome circus footage and like, don't bother me with green screening in the, the Hollywood actors. Just make it, you know what? Why even hire Hollywood actors? Just just bring the trapeze people. Let them be the, the stars of the movie, you know? Then we can see them actually doing this stuff. I, I think that has potential too. Just even to make it more of a documentary could have been good. Make it like C for circus or something. But are you ready to declare, Dan, whether the greatest show on earth is good? Sure, let's do it. So I, I will talk us in. Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. And so I will answer, is the greatest show on earth good? So this might be the worst best picture that I've seen which is not that low of a bar. It's like, I, I've seen mostly the famous ones and mostly the famous ones are good. You know, uh, I haven't seen like Cimarron or the obscure early ones that people don't really talk about anymore. That said, I was kind of on a low four when we started. And then as we were kind of talking through it, it occurred to me that basically nothing stuck in my brain as, as we watched it. Uh, cool footage, good production, I mean, you could talk me, you could maybe talk me up to a low four, but I'm right now I'm feeling a high three on this. It's not, not good. Just a lot of uh, storytelling, melodrama, light romance that I didn't care about. Whenever Jimmy Stewart was on and it was way more interesting. That train scene alone, though, might be enough to get it right up there to the four. It's, it's real close, I would say, for me, between a three and a four. I'll land on just a, a high three, but, um, you know, I say see it if if you like really big productions, uh, if you like the circus and you just want more and more circus in there, if you like brightly colored, high production value Cecil B. DeMille films, but it's definitely not like essential cinema. There's nothing bracing about it. And other than I would say that the train scene, which is 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 really something so. I don't know. You you could maybe talk me up to a four, but that's where I am right now. What about you, Brian? For me, it just squeaks into a five, which we call a good. And I mean, we've talked about it. I, I like the circus and this gives you a lot of that for your buck. Ringling Brothers at their peak right before, you know, trailing off. So it's it's cool to see. I mean, there's like real baby gorillas at the start. Uh quite a few of the acts you get to see and there were beats in the melodrama that I liked. I don't know that it ever gelled as uh, 
seamless whole. But especially the Jimmy Stewart stuff I liked. He tugged my heartstrings, although I would have liked to know a little bit more about him. I actually liked Sebastian's arc. I thought, you know, he we see him lose some of the braggadocio and come down to Earth a bit. I mean, literally, we see him come down to Earth. But, uh, like, I, I bought that, like, Holly was going to help build him back up again. And I just saw more potential there than than with her and, and Brad. So, yeah, kind of an odd one. The green screen really bothered me. But overall, if you like the circus, definitely see it. If you like Cecil B. DeMille, check it out. Uh, overall positive, but just barely for me. It really is hodgepodge is the word you said. It's just a strange combination of things going on with it. It's like, oh, I, I like the circus, so let's make a, a romantic melodrama love triangle about the trapeze artist, but also there's a secret murderer clown there, but he's a good guy, and he's played by Jimmy Stewart. And also there's an enormous train crash at the end because they accidentally get involved with the mob. It's like, I'd, who came up with this? I don't know. Man. Oh, oh. And, yeah, and Pluto the dog is dancing around to Adeste Fideles halfway through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we keep seeing Emmett Kelly, who is, like, one of the most famous clowns behind, like, Ronald McDonald and Bozo. But if you're, like, learning clown history, the guy who's going to be on the front of the textbook is Emmett Kelly. And... I don't know why he's famous after watching this. It's like his his act seemed to be that he's like a mute clown and he just kind of stands around looking sad. And I don't know what his draw was. I, I guess I need to read up on my clown history a little more. But I, like I, I knew him. I saw him. It's like, oh, that's him. And then he, he never really did anything that stole the spotlight. Uh, I didn't know that was a, f a famous clown. I, I feel like I would have liked to know how much of this was real and how much of it was hired hand right because it would have added a, definitely a layer to me like if i knew for sure that hey all these extras these, this person who's doing this work back here that's actually what he does in the circus you know mm -hmm. it's like if it had embedded more in the documentary aspect or something yeah and i mean it was cool seeing the tent go up and come down and i did like that the way that the way the train worked yeah it was cool I'm glad that it exists, that we have this document of the, the greatest show on earth, for sure. Right. And the, the last thing I'll say is we mentioned that this is kind of a lost chapter, a potential uh, one-time inclusion for Circus Month, for Train Month. And I also picked it looking ahead to Movies About Making Movies Month in July. Now, of course, this was prominently featured in The Fablemans, but one of the movies about making movies that I'm going to assign is Super 8. Mmm, okay. So keep this one in your brains. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. But Dan, what is up next from you? Well, we have an exciting one on the docket, Brian. So a couple days from now, uh, to celebrate my birthday, we've been talking about it on the pod. Um, I rented out a movie theater, and we're going to go watch my official favorite movie of all time, That Thing You Do, directed, written by, starring Tom Hanks. 
And I'm really excited about this. I've never seen it on a big screen. I'm excited to do so. You're going to be there, I think, and a few of my other friends. And I, I decided to bring my kids as well. It'll be their first time seeing the movie. And Brian, we're going to, I don't know exactly how we're going to swing it. I think we'll, if we can make it work, I'd like to break my discussion into to two parts. I'm going to indulge myself, force you to indulge me as well. And the first part we're going to do is kind of a normal The Goods episode. And the second episode will be a, a mini extravaganza around lots of ephemera related to that thing you do. We'll take a look at the extended edition. We'll take a look at the reunion they did for COVID. We'll talk about Adam Schlesinger. So it's, you know, it's it's that thing you do. It's my favorite movie. I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it and I'm going to talk about it. So. Uh, this will be very fun, Brian. So thank you for, for joining me this Sunday. And listeners, I, I hope you're excited. Are, are you looking forward to seeing the movie again, Brian? Yeah, it's going to be a deep dive. I'm looking forward to it. So I think last time we spoke, you had only seen the extended edition. So I think this is going to be your first time seeing the theatrical cut. So we'll talk a little bit about the that. Okay. Yeah, I would have to look back at our notes as far as what I remembered being in the movie. I have seen it. A hundred percent. I have seen the film. <laughs> I think you left a comment when I wrote about it on our old blog. So I do remember you saying you'd seen it. So, yeah. All right, Brian. Well, happy birthday again, again, again. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, you came over on my actual birthday to my house and we played. Uh, what's that game called? Beyond Balderdash. And we watched the play that my daughter wrote. So and some I think you should leave sketches. It was a good time. And. So will this be. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brian. And, and thanks, listeners. Adios. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.